As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. All right, welcome back, or welcome to Way Back Wednesday. Throwback Thursday. Sorry, our schedule got a little bit mixed up. We are, we're back to Thursday this week, um, but the premise is the same. I am once again joined by Kevin McKenna, his longtime senior editor at National Dragster, as I always refer to him as a walking encyclopedia of racing knowledge. Kevin, how are you today? Doing well, doing well. It's, uh, it's a bright, sunny day here in Indy. We got race cars running most places in the country, so uh, things things could be a lot worse. It does. It feels, I don't want to say we're back, but it feels like we're back. Like there is racing in, in most parts of the country, and, and even those that are not, it seems like there is optimism. Even uh, talk to some friends in Canada that things are back uh, either, I think, on the track within the last week or two or in the upcoming week, or certainly optimistic that we're heading yeah. in that direction. So mm -hmm. uh, good to see all the way around. Yeah. Uh, our, uh, our throwback today, we're going to take it back to 2001. So this is almost as far back as we've gone, 19 years in arrears. Uh, going through some of the notes, uh, this looks like fun. I, I, I have mixed memories from the season, and it's, it's funny because the bracket racing stuff and the IHRA stuff, I think, was kind of where my focus was. But particularly some of the NHRA professional notes that, that you would put on our sheet, I don't even, I have no recollection of it all. So it, it's cool to, to kind of go You were back. a kid. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was 20 years old. So um, let's start there. What was, what was going on in your life uh, 19 years ago? Uh, well, I mean, I guess we probably need to start with what was going on in everyone's life, address the, the elephant in the room. This is 2001 and September 11th, the world changed. Um, changed for all of us. Uh, obviously, a lot of uncertainty following that. Uh, it changed everything from the way we fly to the way, you know, really almost everything. You know, it was our Pearl Harbor, and uh, it changed life. And I think there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of fear and a lot of doubt of how it might ultimately affect drag racing. Um, it did. You know, we had events postponed. 
you had some security concerns, but we managed to get through it. Um, you know, the sport and most other sports came out of it, uh, you know, stronger and, and um, you know, in some ways b better than before. So, so I think there's kind of a lesson there today for, uh, you know, when, when you face adversity on a national scale, you can get through it and you look at a little bit of what's going on today. And, you know, I won't compare that with 9-11. It's two very different, very separate things. But, you know, it, it does give you hope that uh, this sport is strong enough to survive just about anything that you throw at it. And I think there are some similarities because I just feel like that the illusion of control is broken. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And there's so much uncertainty. Like I, I do think that there are similarities, but obviously it's, it's, it's different as well. Um, where, where were you when you found out? Uh, living in California and of course being Western time zone, it was, uh, you know, before 5 AM, but oddly we had a friend from the East coast who was in town and he had, uh, he was jet lagged. So he was up watching TV when it first hit the news and he called you know, and when your phone rings before 6 a.m., you generally think it's something uh, to be concerned about. And he said, turn on the TV. So we, we watched most everything unfold live, uh, which was something that, you know, most California people didn't. Um, but I do remember, uh, obviously, that was a Tuesday. On Thursday, I was scheduled to fly to Reading for the Keystone Nationals and, you know, went to work later that day pretty much with the idea that, you know, this was serious enough. That event was not going to happen. Um, I do remember NHRA was probably the first organized sport to postpone anything. I mean, we came out early in the day and, and you know, had pushed, uh, pushed that back, no, knowing that people would be traveling, you know, by air, by car, whatever. Um, you know, NHRA was one of the first to postpone it. We came back about a month later and obviously by that point, things had settled down, you know, but I do remember uh, the, the, plane trip going to and from Reading, you know, the, with all the security protocols that were new, you know, the security line out to the parking garage and telling you to be two hours early for your flight and um, just all the things and just what, what a bizarre, uh, you know, frightening time that was because you, you know, you didn't know, would there be more attacks where, when, you know, no, no one at that time understood the depth of this. Interesting follow-up question for you because I know that, that you've flown recently like what was more eerie stepping back onto a plane after 9-11 or stepping onto a plane during this pandemic you know as I know oh, you've oh, 9 9-11 by light years yeah just just because that was such a horrifying thing uh, you know and again the uncertainty you know these attacks could they pop up again at any time you know how how deep how organized was this plan um yeah that uh, I don't generally get fearful on flights, but uh, the, the, you know, the flights post September 11th were far worse. You know, conversely, you know, I flew about three weeks ago and, and actually found it to be not as um, uh, difficult an experience as I thought. The airport, you know, Indianapolis airport, and I flew to Tampa, were both exceptionally clean. And the flight, you know, the plane itself, was was clean. The boarding process was organized. They made an effort. It was Southwest, so you didn't have an assigned seat, but they made an attempt to space people out. And, you know, and there were 58 people on the flight, so it was roughly half full. Um, it, it didn't feel inconvenienced at all. And, and you know, I've told people recently that I, I would feel much, much safer 
going through an airport and flying on a plane right now than I would even going to the local grocery store for an hour. I, I just think it's, it's a much more sanitary environment. I think airports are going the extra mile to, to make sure that things are clean and disinfected. And, you know, as long as you do your part by washing your hands and whatnot, then, um, you know, I don't really see it as being a high risk environment. No, it's that that's basically the feedback that I've gotten from just about everyone that I've talked to that's flown. Like it's almost less stressful than it was yeah. six months ago, just because the crowds are so much smaller. Um, all right. So 2001 for me, um, in August, for, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, uh, in August, my father passed away. Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer in, in late 2000. Mm -hmm. So we, we found it late and then it progressed rapidly. So obviously, a uh, a difficult year and a difficult time in my life. I was uh, 19, 20 years old. So between my sophomore and, and junior year at, uh, at Northwood University in college. And so then you, you combine that, like going through the, the, the personal tragedy, tragedy end of it. My father and I were, I, I like to say we were really close. Racing was our thing, right? That's absolutely mm -hmm. what, what brought us together. And probably, um, and in a lot of ways, looking back now, like his passing probably uh, uh, like validated or steeled my resolve in, in racing because it was kind mm -hmm. of our thing. You know, it, was, it wasn't just my dream, it was ours. But just the timing of it now, and it, it, felt, it felt it at the time, but it even seems more poignant looking back. Um, my father passed away less than a month before 9-11. So it had this feeling like my world is coming to an end. Yeah. And then, holy hell, the whole world's coming to an end. You know what I mean? And, and the, it was an interesting lens through which to view what was going on. And I'll never forget, because I asked you where, where you were at the time. So Northridge University, it's this really small, was this really small um, university in, in um Cedar Hill, Texas, in the DFW mm -hmm. area, and most of our classes were in one building, but there was a, a chapel that I think this was the only time that I had a class in the chapel, and I'll never forget the the professor was Dr. Levesque, and that like morning passing on um, probably September eleventh, yeah. the discussion I don't even remember what the class was, but the discussion was a a uh, an ancient like um, government or society in which, and I, I don't remember the details, but in which the, the leadership basically determined that the only way to combat violence was with violence. And we were basically debating that theory. I walk out of that class at whatever, nine o'clock, 9.30 in the morning, and to make your way back to the main building off the back of it was this glass enclosed structure that was like a study hall area that normally you would see maybe five students in, you know, sitting, reading, sure. studying, whatever, passing the time between classes. And as I'm walking down there, it's obvious that something is wrong because right. there are hundreds of students, because there was two televisions in that class area and everyone in there surrounding them, standing just in awe. So you walk in and begin to catch the news. And I'll just never forget that feeling, having that discussion, right? That the only way to combat violence mm -hmm. was violence and then walk into that. And then going to my next class, and I still remember the instructor this day, uh, Professor Genchev, we, just, just, we had a group discussion about what little we knew about what was going on. And about mm -hmm. 15 minutes into it, he's like, I, the, the university hasn't made this decision. He's like, just go home and be with your families. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah. you know, I, this, we're not getting anywhere with anything that we're talking about because we don't know anything. And um, 
yeah, just a, such a surreal time. Now, and for people now, now that it's been almost 20 years and you think about, you know, kids that were, you know, either not born then or maybe too young to really remember, you know, for the first few days, you, you had every reason to think that this was World War III, that the world was coming to an end. You know, again, there was so much unknown that, you know, was this part of a bigger plan? You know, were there, would there be more attacks? Uh, you, you, you know, as, as, as much as the fear of what happened gripped you, the fear of the unknown was probably a little worse, you know, for people to, you know, again, I mean, we shut down travel in this country for the, the better part of two weeks. Um, you know, the only planes in the sky were military jets and Connie Kalita freight planes because they were deemed essential, um, you know, to transport things like medicine and, and you know, organ transplants, things of that nature. Uh, you know, uh, otherwise it, it was, you know, is close to, well, it, it actually obviously led to a war. Um, but uh, at the time, that was something that most of the people you know, from, from my generation had never really had to experience. You know, I was alive, I was young during Vietnam, but that was half a world apart. It, it, that had not come here. Yeah, no, I think when we look back on 2001, that's the poignant memory. Like that's the first thing that everyone would point to, to set the stage uh, racing wise. Just some of the other things that, that popped up in, in 2001, uh, the Apple released the first iPod. Um, in in sports, it was the uh, the Baltimore Ravens over the New York Giants in the Super Bowl, uh, the Diamondbacks over the Yankees in the World Series. In the NBA, it was Kobe's Lakers over Allen Iverson's 76ers. That was the second of three consecutive uh, NBA titles for the Lakers in that first run. That was the, the Kobe and Shaq era. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanley Cup, uh, Colorado over New Jersey. And uh, in the NCAA tournament, we saw Duke the Blue Devils over Arizona. Um, music, this is hard for me to believe. This is almost 20 <laughs> years ago, but uh, Destiny Child and Survivor was, uh, was a big hit, as was Blueprint from Jay-Z. Uh, Alicia Keys topped the charts with Fallen uh, and won basically every award that was awarded that year, from Song of the Year to Best Female Vocal to R&B Song of the Year. Uh, Janet Jackson's All For You was big. Um, movies, uh, Shrek, Ocean's Eleven, uh, Fast and the Furious, those jumped out. Um, Sex in the City was a big thing. Uh, won an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series. And uh, The Power Couple of 2001, <laughs> I thought this was cool. Uh, John Travolta and Kelly Preston. I actually had to pull this up and do a little bit of research. They're still married, 29 years. So it, it seems rare in the, in the, in the Hollywood romance uh, setting. So congrats to, sure. to John and Kelly. <laughs> Uh, all right, so take us back to the, the NHRA um, professional ranks. Obviously, 2001 is, a, is a, an interesting season just based around 9-11 and, and the, 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 the impact on the world at large and, and on a much smaller scale, the impact on the NHRA schedule. But take us back through the, sure. the professional ranks. Yeah, it, it, it was a, a fairly robust year with, uh, you know, so, some very competitive races in, in all of the professional classes. Uh, what you'll take from Top Fuel, it was the Beer Wars. Kenny Bernstein with Budweiser, Larry Dixon with Miller. Um, the two of them pretty much battled it out uh, all year long. Um, Kenny won eight races, Dixon won six. Ironically, they did not race in a final round. Um, but uh, Kenny came out on top uh, to win his, uh, I believe, second Top Fuel championship. It was his final. Um, interesting side note, at that point, Kenny's son, Brandon, was coming up through the ranks. 
racing an A-fuel dragster in the top alcohol dragster class. He also won three races, uh, and the two of them did share the winner's circle in Atlanta and Chicago, which I would think for, you know, for a parent, there's probably no greater feeling than to, uh, you know, win an event uh, on the same day as, as your son or daughter. And, you know, it, it's, it's happened a few times, sportsman racing, you know, obviously John Force has shared the winner's circle with uh, Brittany a few times, but um, yeah, that, that was more or less everything going on in, uh, in top fuel that year. So, okay. That'd be a good research assignment for you. You got Kenny and Brandon Bernstein, mm-hmm. John and Brittany Force, Ray and Dave Connolly. Mm-hmm. What other father-son duos have shared winter circles? Oh, well, I know Sam Biondo won mm-hmm. a single national event, and I'm trying to remember, I believe Peter won. Uh, if not, I think he was in the final. I mean, yeah, I, I remember it. to stick out, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I also know that Ron Folk won a national event. I don't think Nick or Brian also. Yeah, I think it was, that was at Topeka one year because it was, a, I think, round one Super Street, but I don't think one of them joined him. Yeah, um, it's interesting you bring up Peter too because he's done some really cool stuff in that regard. I, I think you're right. I think he won with Sam. I know he's won alongside Sal. He's won mm-hmm. si- one alongside Emily. Yes, yeah. that's a lot of boxes to check. You know? oh, yeah. I guess when you've got whatever forty plus fifty <laughs> national event wins, like you're bound to do some cool stuff along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't believe Dan has yet. Uh, Dan Fletcher has yet shared the winner circle with uh, mm. either of his boys, although they both have national event wins. You know, the, the list of second and third generation winners is fairly long. I, I believe it's, if it's not a hundred yet, it's close to it. Um, you know, especially now as more kids come up through the ranks, you know, we've seen quite a bit of that, but to, to do it on the same day um, is, is pretty, um, pr- pretty special. You know, you've had some father son finals, you know, Connie and Scott Coletta raced in a final, that, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it uh, you know, it, it underscores something we've all known, which is, what a great family sport this is and, and how it, you know, it, it survives because it is passed from generation to generation. Um, go ahead. No, I was just thinking, I'm going to rack my brain. I feel like there's got to be one or two more. Uh, I'm sure there is. And, 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 I, and I probably somewhere in here, if I took the time to look for it, I'm sure I have a document that highlights them. Um, but we'll, uh, We'll make that a homework assignment for, for another day. Maybe next week we'll come back and have a comprehensive list. Um, but if you want to move on to Funny Car, guess who? Surprise, John Force. It was the ninth of 10 straight championships, which wrap your mind around that. An entire decade where you never take the number one off the car. Um, who does that? Nobody else. No, nobody else in any other sport. It's, you know, un- unprecedented. Um, he was also on the verge of some, well, made some pretty significant history. Um, this was John's 11th overall title, which broke the tie with Bob Glidden, gave him the most championships of anyone in HRA. Uh, and he also ended the season with 98 wins, uh, which, you know, obviously not even halfway through 2002, he would hit the 100 win plateau. And if you think, granted, it's been 19 years, but to think the man is still going strong and he has now won 50% again more, you know, he's sitting on 152 and to think it was the 2001 season that uh, he had 98 wins and everybody thought that was the most amazing career ever. You'll never see anything like that, which really we can't, you know, the list of drivers that have won a hundred is still extremely short. It's four for the record. You know, it's David Rampey, Dan Fletcher, Frank Manzo, end of list. 
Um, so yeah, that it just, uh, you know, we could go on and on about the greatness of John Force, but that was John in his prime. Okay, double digit world championships. Force, Glidden, Manzo, is that the list? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Tony Schumacher is at eight. Um, I don't know any anyone else in sportsman race. Yeah, I, I, ten plus is that's that's it. Wow. Uh, yeah, because I was just looking at your notes. WJ would have come up as a possibility. Two thousand one was his last championship. That was number six, right? Correct. Yeah, moving on to pro stock, Warren won his sixth and final championship. Um, he had six wins that year, which technically makes that a dominant season. But the interesting thing about Pro Stock in 2001 was if you want to talk parody, we had 15 different winners in 24 events, which is something that, uh, that, that is the record for most wins in a season, most different winners in a season. And, um, you know, it, it I, I think is it's kind of a testament. In my mind, that is a good thing to have happen where, you know, if you're going to invest so much time and effort into this, if you can come out of it with at least one win a year, I think it helps justify what you're doing. So if you had 15 different people that, that have that experience, um, you know, in my mind, parity is a good thing. Obviously, if you're a racer, you don't want parity, you want to dominate. But, um, you know, that was sort of a high watermark um, for Pro Stock. And, and, and if you want the list of the 15, uh, I have it. If you want to guess and see how many you can get, we can go that route. Oh, uh, boy, what a trivia time. Okay, okay. Uh, so 2001. Mm -hmm. Gosh, all right. So WJ, Kurt Johnson. Mm -hmm. Is that still the time of Alderman? Or is that too too far in? Okay. Uh, Jeff Brown? Nope. Okay. Krischer. Correct. Edwards. Correct. Jag. Correct. Uh, wow. Okay. I'm getting slow here pretty quick. Uh, Greg Anderson. Correct. Connolly. No, no. Before his time. Yep. It was yeah. That's way bit. before his time. What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he... Uh, okay. 2001. Bruce Allen. Mm -hmm. Bruce won two, one, one of only three multiple winners that year. I haven't. I've only got like eight, don't I? Uh, you're not doing bad. Yeah, that's that's eight. That's eight. So you're you're a little more than fifty percent there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, for, for, for grading on a curve, you might pass. <laughs> is it um, Mark Thomas? No, no, not not, not Mike Thomas. Not, Mike Thomas. No, Mark Mike. Thomas. Nope. Yeah, I'm drawing it straight. Okay, either I, one, but not, not not a horrible guess. Uh, White flag. I'm trying, I'm getting my, uh, my uh, ages mixed up. You're Mark Powick? Mark Powick, yes. Yes. All right. Uh, Correct. This would have been post. Think, think, think successful business, think successful businessmen. There, there, there were a couple of those uh, guys that came in and, and invested heavily and, and had some success. B Gaines? B Gaines. Uh, one more guy that kind of was cut from that cloth, uh, you know, very successful businessman that raced for a few years. When you think of Krischer and V Gaines, and there's another guy that sort of fits in that category. I'm drawing a blank. I think Las that's Ve the best I can do. L Las Vegas. 
tell us the, I, I just, I'm thinking of Anderson's deal. You're you're kind of in the same neighborhood, but <laughs> <I'm> getting warm. <laughs> you're getting you're getting warm. How about George Marnell? Ah, Marnell. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, the other thing that people forget: this was the infancy of pro mod, so Troy Coughlin would have still been in ah, pro stock. Okay. Um, so Tro Troy bag Troy bag to win that year, I believe. Uh, Topeka. 12, right? uh, I'll, I'll spare you. I'll, I'll spare you the grief. Tom Martino, Mark Osborne. Richie Stevens Jr. and Jimmy Yates. Oh, yeah, this was an obvious one. I should have thought of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that. That is, that's a pretty stout list. And and um, I mean, to me, to me, that's fantastic to uh, to to go to a an event, watch Pro Stock, and not have any idea who's going to win. You know, to to look and say, you know, you think there's you know five guys who finished who finished out of the top ten that won races. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, there's been uh, there's probably been years in the sportsman categories where you haven't had 15 different winners in a you know in a super it, it, oh, for, or super for sure. stock or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, conversely, the Pro Stock Motorcycle Championship was not as hotly contested. Uh, that was Angel's second of three. Uh, she won seven out of 15 races, riding the. It was actually the last year of her Winston deal. Um, George Bryce, uh, you know, fairly dominant season. A um, couple other interesting things. Uh, well, we still had Pro Stock Truck at that point. That was Bob Pinella Jr., I believe his third championship straight. But the, um, the, the big news, not necessarily a pro thing, but 2001 was the year that Pro Mod finally came to NHRA as an exhibition category. Uh, it, it was long awaited. People had wanted it for a while. The class had obviously done great things for IHRA. It was popular as a match race thing. For years, Such you were a hot class, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were cars all over the country. They were running Super Chevys and events, and people were like, why do you not have Pro Mod at NHRA events? And it finally came together where NHRA's management could not ignore the movement that was Pro Mod. Put together a short, I believe it was four races the first year. Um, the first one being Gainesville. Now that race was rain delayed. But when they came back, Ricky Smith beat Kirk Coons in the final. Uh, but the interesting thing I always remember about that was the press release from NHRA announcing that. And uh, there was a quote from NHRA founder Wally Parks, who was, of course, still alive at the time. And uh, Wally basically never wanted to, you know, he, he, Wally didn't mind a little poke in the ribs sometimes. And uh, he basically said, we didn't invent ProMod, we just gave them great places to race, which I always thought was typical Wally. That, that's exactly the type of thing he would say, j j just to kind of, um, you know, needle some of his, his rival associations. <laughs> when you, it's interesting, Ricky Smith wins the first, you know, true NHRA ProMod race. Yeah. Is... Because I think the answer is the answer is obvious and funny car, right? John Force is synonymous with funny car. Mm -hmm. I think Glidden's probably still the answer in pro stock, right? Is Ricky Smith the answer in pro mod? Uh, yeah, yeah, is it, it, winningest, and and it's it's a little bit of a gray area as far as you know. You had the early exhibition wins where they weren't racing for a Wally. It was kind of an invite class. So when you're looking at national event victories, do you count them? Don't them like? We, we debate that sort of thing fairly yeah. often between a lot of us, you know, Lewis Bloom, the stat guy, Brian Loans, th th there's, 
from time to time, there are texts that go around, should we count this, shouldn't we? Um, you know, a lot of times the benchmark is, did you get a poly? But hmm. yeah. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I mean, to, to me, as long as it wasn't an invitational, I'm, I'm fine with saying that is a national event win. Mm -hmm. um, open to all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, as long as it was an open field and it was run during a national event, I, you know, hey, you did the work, you get the trophy, uh, to me, count it, R rack it up. You know, I, yeah. I would ra I would rather award somebody a national event when the, maybe there was some gray area than take one away from someone who who did the work and deserves it. There's um, been so many different iterations of Pro Modified over the years. You know, from the, yes. the IHRA infancy to it kind of blowing up, and like you said, the mm -hmm. match race scene to infiltration in NHRA. And I don't know. There's not an obvious answer. I don't feel like there's someone that's dominated it for. 20, 30 years, Ricky's been a part of it seemingly, yes. you know, off and on at times for that period of time. But like you could, I could see making the argument for Scotty Cannon as like the illustrious mm -hmm. pro mod star from back in the day. Same, what was it? It's Rob Vandergriff, right? It seemed to be dominant mm -hmm. yes. in the IHRA stuff. Yeah. And then in more recent times, it's, it's Stevie Fast and things like that. But I think sure. if you had to take it in totality, I, I think Ricky's the answer. Yeah. And, and, and Ricky's talents, um, you know, if you look at door slammer racing in general, you know, his body of work in pro stock mm -hmm. is fairly impressive. You know, he only won, I believe, two events as a driver, but he was the crew chief for almost everybody. At, at one point, you know, as I'm researching these, I go back and, you know, we'll check, you know, headlines of 2001. And inevitably, there's almost always a press release in there that says, Ricky Smith leaves blank team, joins blank team. I, I mean, he has probably worn without exaggeration, 20 uniforms of, of, of NHRA teams, both pro mod and, and pro stock where, you know, I know, you know, Kenny Koretsky, Krischer, Yates, the Jags guys. I mean, he just, the list goes on and on. And, you know, there's probably nobody better at setting up a car, reading track conditions. Um, that, that is Ricky's, you know, I know NASCAR has a guy suitcase Jake that was the, their best guy ever for setting up cars. Well, Ricky Smith is, is our, uh, you know, our, our answer to that. Yeah, and I mean, uh, accomplished as a driver to multiple IHRA Pro Stock World Championships before getting into the, yeah. the, the crew chief scene and then ultimately into the NHRA Pro Mod as well. Mm -hmm. um, and can you just, can you imagine driving for crew chief Ricky Smith? Because that dude's talented as a driver yeah. too. Like I did, and, he, and he seems like, I don't know Ricky personally, but seems like a pretty abrasive personality. Like if you mess up, he's going to tell you about it. Uh, I, I think abra I think abrasive would be a, f a fair word. Uh, Ricky Ricky has no problem uh, sharing his his opinion, um, honest and blatant as it may be. Uh, you know, I, I give Ricky a, a a lot of credit for things. He is nobody is better at playing the angles. Um, if you give him him an opening, he, he's he's gonna take it. Um, he, he pretty much has uh, the tech department on speed dial, so. You know, whenever new rules come out, Rick Ricky is quick to uh, to give his input and uh, share his opinions, solicited or otherwise. Um, and and you know what, uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, if if a lot of times if you don't ask for something, you don't get it. And, and you look at the, uh, the the pendulum that is pro mod rules, where you try, you know, especially this year where you now have four and five different combinations that you're trying to make competitive you know we haven't had a race yet technically but wait until we do and there needs to be maybe even race to race adjustments um but you know, it's probably a different topic for a different day but 
I, I think the job that the tech department does maintaining parity in ProMod is amazing because for 10 years, it has been some of the best competition anywhere in the sport. Uh, you know, amazingly fast runs, great side-by-side -side racing, a difference in the power adders, you know, sometimes turbo cars have their days, the nitrous guys seem to do fine, lone cars, and to, to be able to take that whole thing, put it in a bowl and scramble it up and still have come out of it with a competitive package, um, it takes a lot of work. And uh, I, I think that's part of why that series is one of the best things we got going. All right, so we'll divert back from that tangent back into to 2001. Uh, we went through the, the main professional categories. What other news and notes from the, the NHRA professional scene have you got for us? From well, we, we had a few interesting things. Um, being NHRA's 50th anniversary, we did a midsummer race in Pomona, um, which was not, it was a little different format. Nighttime eliminations, um, and, you know, Pomona is a difficult place because you have curfews. It's tough, but uh, it actually went very well. Uh, it's a shame that it was sort of a, a one-time thing. But, you know, I remember that event from having, like, driver introductions. You know, we brought out, like, laser lights and things. And, and it, it was a lot closer to what you might see at a Supercross event or a Monster Jam, you know. And, and I, I think going forward, you might see a little more of that, you know, obviously coming out of what we're going through now with the pandemic and everything, NHRA is going to, every business really is going to have to reevaluate and redefine what they're doing. And I think you'll see a little more of that. Hopefully you'll see night eliminations, um, you know, to be determined, but you know, we've got two day events coming up this year. We'll see how that works. You might just see a, a little more of that. Um, a few other things, the, um, as part of the 50th anniversary, we did, we being NHRA, did a comprehensive list of top 50 drivers. Uh, and, and this was, there were probably 15 or 20 people, industry people, like media, uh, just people that really know the sport that were polled. And we, we took, tabulated the votes and came up with it. Um, Don Garlitz was and continues to be pretty much the consensus as the top drag racer of all time. You know, even though his win total now has been surpassed by many people, uh, you know, everything that he had done for the sport to basically make it what it is, he's there. So your, your top five were Don Garlitz, John Force, Don Perdome, Bob Glidden, Shirley Muldowney. And if you did that list again today, I'm not sure that top five would change. Um, you know, I, I think the rest of the list would, you know, you had people like Tony Schumacher and Jig that have now, you know, won so much since then that it would be hard to ignore them. Uh, the cool thing about this list, it included – of uh, some very prominent sportsman racers, including David Rampey, Edmund, and Scotty Richardson. Um, they were both included, so it, it was great. The cool thing about the list is it had such a broad spectrum of pro racers, sportsman racers, alcohol guys, you know, showman type guys like Wild Willie Borsch. Just, um, it, it was really a cool thing to be a part of, and there was lots of back and forth debating of who, who should be here, who should be there, and um, very interesting stuff. Yeah, no, that's what I, that's where I wanted to go with this was get a little bit behind the curtain as to, to what it was like, because I know you had a hand in, in assembling that list. And mm -hmm. to your point, the top five, like, I don't know that you could make a, a valid argument to change it 20 years later. No, who, who would you, who would you knock out? Who would you put in the right. top five? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, Tony Schumacher, winningest top field driver ever, eight world championships. But which one of those five people, Garlitz, Force, Perdon, Blid, and Muldowney, do you take out to put Tony Schumacher or anybody else in? Yeah, um, just between accomplishment and impact on the sport as a whole. It's, it's, yes, yeah. I mean, even, even yeah. Frank Manzo with his 105 wins, 17 championships, it's a phenomenal career. But, you know, again, this, we, we made it very clear when we did the balloting that this was not based solely on wins and losses. You had to factor in things such as, you know, Shirley's drive for equality in the sport to be accepted in the 1970s as a female top field driver. You know, there's a lot that went with that, a lot of adversity that had to be overcome. You know, you, you look at people like Garlitz and more specifically Force, what they've done for the sport in terms of publicity and how they've helped bring it to mainstream America. Those are things that, you know, you had to count th th those sort of things. Um, you know, so again, it's not just the wins and losses are so overwhelming. Um, you, you really looked at things like marketing and publicity and um, what uh, you were able to do there. And, and, and there was a lot of debate. Uh, there were some people who were not comfortable with some of the choices. Um, you know, Wait, you uh, mean not everyone agrees? Garlitz has had his, uh, not, not just the top 50, but even the top five, the, the top, uh, you know, the, the, the top spot to some people, to a small group of people. Um, I won't go into too much, but, but it, it was heavily debated. Who um, should, but, but, but ultimately uh, the, the will of the people won out and you know, the voting was true and honest and fair. And um, we, we, you know, we managed to come up with what I think was a, a very comprehensive list. And uh, yeah, it, it would look totally different today just because of what's transpired in the last 20 years. But for 2001, uh, I, I think it was a, a great um, representative. And while we are on the subject of NHRA Hall of Famers, one of the highlights of the 2001 season was the U.S. Nationals. And it was sort of the last hurrah for Garlitz and Muldowney. They each showed up. Uh, Don Garlitz was driving Gary Clapshaw's car. You know, he had retired. He had had problems with his eyes. But it galled him to no end that he had never run over 300. People would stop him and say, what's your best run? And at the time it was, I don't know, 287, 291 something. And he just could not bear the thought of retiring without a 300 mile an hour time slip. Um, he had, if people remember, he had his mono wing car that really didn't fit NHRA tech. There wasn't enough time for it to conform. So Gary Clapshaw out of Las Vegas said, you know, I've got a competitive car. Why don't you just drive for me? Uh, he went out there, I think on the first or second run, you know, put it in, in the, in the fours at over 300, went 303. And, uh, that, that was, you know, a, a great moment, uh, you know, Friday night qualifying at Indy, we lined up Garlitz and Muldowney, Buster Couch was the starter. You know, anyone was there. It was really one of the cool, cool, uh, highlights of the year. You uh, you talked a little bit on a previous uh, episode. We talked about the 2000 season and, uh, and Dave Schultz getting his last win, uh, cancer ridden at the time. Uh, in 2000, marked the the end for Dave Schultz uh, as he passed away. Yeah, we you know we we knew at the time at the, at the end of 2000 after he raced, you know he won Houston at the end of the year. That was his final win, and uh, you know unfortunately things deteriorated 
from there. And by by January, we knew that, that things were not going well. And then um, I believe we were actually in Pomona when, when we'd heard that, uh, you know, things had taken a turn for the worse and, uh, and that he was gone. And uh, it was sad. I remember I flew to Indy to, for his funeral and, um, you know, it, it was a little bit uplifting to see the amount of support he had, um, not just from the motorcycle community, but there were people from really quite a few motorsports that came. I know there were some IndyCar guys there that he'd had a relationship with. And um, yeah, you know, Dave was a guy who was very much on that top 50 list, not just for his, uh, you know, pro stock motorcycle championships, but, you know, again, he was a guy almost as much as Terry Vance that really advanced the cause of motorcycle drag racing. Um, so yeah, it, that, that, that was a tough loss to start the year. And let's transition from there over into the, the Lucas Oil Series ranks within the NHRA. Top Alcohol Drags or Top Alcohol Funny Car, no huge surprise <laughs> for the time period. Uh, this was the fifth and final uh, Alcohol Dragster Championship for Rick Santos and one of how many for Manzo total? Uh, Manzo has 17 total. 17 um, total. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what order this is. It was probably midway through his run. Mm -hmm. um, but Frank, uh, you know, he's done this several times racks up 850 points, which is a perfect season in an alcohol car. That is 10 wins at 85 points apiece. Uh, six of them came at national events. And, uh, you know, he was just on top of his game at the time, could not be touched. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, not sure who finished second. I can probably look it up here real quick. Um, but it, it, it was pretty much, uh, a white well, Jay Payne at 771. So yeah, he he was only one full race behind. And, yeah, and even even the great Pat Austin, whose career whose career was amazing, Pat was third, 100 points back with 750. So you know that that just sort of alludes to to Frank's dominance in those days. Uh, competition eliminator world champion in 2001, Don Stratton, in a close matchup or a close uh, finish over Mike Say. Say was actually mm -hmm. the, uh, the answer to a little trivia time that Austin Williams had thrown out on uh, last week's podcast episode as far as uh, I, think they, I think he came up with 11 drivers that had won uh, sp true sportsman world championships in multiple categories. Mike Say mm -hmm. was the one that was like the stumper. The, uh, ah. eight, of the, eight of the 11 were fairly obvious. There was a couple that you had to reach for. Say was the one that I, I'll take credit for that. I did much better on that than Pro Stock. But say was really, it's, it's it's only eleven. Boy, that 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 number seems awfully low. But I, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought the same thing. Um, Super Stock, Dan the Man, Fletcher, um, Fletcher's World Championship. I believe that would have been his second in Super Stock. If we're going back to 01. Co correct. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, second, well, yeah, his second in Super Stock. He he would come back. Uh, a few years later, I think 08, and win the comp title. Comp, right. Yeah. Uh, but he, he won 98 uh, in Superstock, his first one, won again. And, and, and I, I do remember that second championship because knowing Dan, I mean, he was obviously very grateful, very happy to win the championship, but there had to be that tiny little part of him that was frustrated because these two championships came in the same class. He did not have a lifetime exemption uh, to, to grade points. He still had to get grade points in order to enter a stocker it wasn't until he won the comp championship that he said fine i never have to go to another points meet as long as i live if i don't want to um so yeah that's if you know dan you you know his thoughts on that are well documented 
Kevin Helms, 2001 was his first Stock Eliminator Championship. It was the first of three straight yes. and now four total, right? Can you pick Correct. up another mm-hmm. one re- more recently? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in the stick shift days. Helms. It, that, yes, I, I was wondering if we, we were going to bring that up, but yes. Uh, big block, stick shift Camaro. It, it doesn't get any cooler than that. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you feel bad because if, if I hadn't, if I didn't even have it on our list, I'm sure you could have guessed who finished second by just five points. Perennial bridesmaid, Jody Lang, poor guy, just, you know, I'm sure he had, uh, you know, another monster season, multiple wins. And um, just in, in the end, uh, couldn't, couldn't get past Kevin. Yeah. One of, I mean, multiple second place finishes and one of at least three or four times, it was like a round or less that Jody came up yes. short of the world championship. Yeah, um, he was 15, 15 points back. Uh, super comp. Uh, this is your Rodney Kosla won it. And uh, at the time I was racing with Rodney a lot, had one of uh, Frank Kahutek's old cars. I believe it was mm-hmm. the same car that Kahutek had won the championship with a couple years prior. I want to say that was 99. Um, and just kind of spoke to, again, uh, I'm biased, but that area, the Dallas-Fort Worth area in that time frame, you had Rodney Kosla, Frank Kutek, Tommy Phillips, Nathan Martin, uh, myself coming up, Scotty and Edmund had moved to Nashville at the time, but they were, you know, part of that ingrained scene. You know, the competition a little too tough in Dallas. They, they needed to I don't get out. think that that was the reason necessarily, <laughs> but yeah. The, uh, but they, I think they kind of set the stage, elevated it, and then left for greener pastures. Um, but I mean, the names that I just rattled off, plus Jeff and Jeremy Heffler, and Jimmy Paul and uh, Jeff and Robbie Lopez, like just that, that group of racers from that area and that time was unbelievable. You got, it's not far removed from John Woods championship. Gary Risk is in there. If you get into super gas, yeah, like, yeah. there's a lot of just amazing competitors from basically the same area code, you know, in, in that sure. time frame. Uh, so Costello was a champion, super comp, super gas was uh, Ed Stout. Uh, in a tiebreaker, and I didn't. Yes. I remember the tiebreaker. I didn't re- remember the number being so low. Just 582 points to win the Super yeah. Gas Championship might be the lowest. That uh, if not, if it's not, it's darn close. Yeah. Right. So Destout wins it in a tiebreaker over Scotty Richardson. Uh, Scotty, one of two times, he's a five-time NHRA World Champion. He's lost two on a tiebreaker. Uh, the other being Super Comp to to Matt Driscoll. I think a few years prior to yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Um, Funny story from the year. So I think I've mentioned this before, but part of part of my actual college curriculum was mm-hmm. we they flew us to SEMA each year and to to be a part of it. I was, I, my degree is actually in automotive aftermarket business management. So I think that the if I, memory serves, like the rest of my class flew out Friday, and I was like, that's mm-hmm. not an option. I'm racing, so I raced somewhere <laughs> Saturday and got a separate flight Sunday. And my flight landed in Las Vegas early Sunday afternoon, or maybe mid-Sunday afternoon. And I took a taxi direct from the airport to the drag strip because it was the national event. And I walked over the hill with my, with my bag as I watched Scotty win the final round of the national event in Supergas. It was the, the ride and decal Corvette Roadster. Mm-hmm. I walked in the gate and was part of his winter circle picture, right? And was there with everybody. That was the year that the, this group, Scotty was out there in this group of, uh, it was like Shane Carr, Nick Bolt, Dan Northrup, maybe mm-hmm. Mulligan had all packed up from the million and drove West together. Right, right. So you can just imagine this crowd, right? And so I know all of them, <laughs> I get in the picture, it, it kicks off 
one of the wildest nights of my life, right? <laughs> As you can just imagine with that crowd. I have vague memories of Northrop literally show, throwing shots over his shoulder onto people in the, in the Hard Rock Cafe. So yeah, uh, but that, that, was, that all originated with Scotty winning. but I think it was the next week at the Divisional that he had to win whatever it was, fourth or fifth round, and came yeah. up one round short. You, you can go on. Statute of limitations is probably up by now if you want to elaborate <laughs> on that night. <laughs> on it, this, I, I'm incriminating myself, but I don't remember a lot. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, as they say, what happens in Vegas, you know, you know, the, you know the rest. So. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you want to move on to some other interesting notes, um, Jeff Taylor did not win a championship that year, but monster season doubled in Memphis with comp and superstock uh, two of seven national events that he came home with that year. Um, you also had an interesting at, at Indy Santo Volpe jumps in this nasty blown Corvette uh, and manages to keep the thing together for five rounds to win, uh, you know, comp at, at NHRA's biggest event. Um, that, that was a car that people just cheered for because the thing was loud and crazy, but um, they, they had a very good handle on that car. Uh, as far as keeping it consistent and drivable and you know you we, we've talked a little bit more recently of what brad plowart is doing with that I was quick about to draw that blown altered again. yeah and you know this was a, a little bit of a precursor to that that uh, you know maybe showed you that can be done um another interesting winner that year bertozzi wins gainesville not anthony melinda uh, melinda actually won you know anthony's now ex-wife but uh actually won a national event before he did. She jumped in the super comp car in Gainesville. Um, that, that, that was sort of an interesting win. And then, um, you know, Peter Biondo wins pretty much everywhere, anytime, anything. Uh, that was another one of his indie wins. He um, defeated a, a Hemi car, Jer Jerry Jenkins, in, in the final round. And I know we've talked about this before. Is it six times Peter's won Indy? I believe it is, yeah. yeah that's an insane number. Um, yeah. All right, quickly, I'll run through uh, IHRA World Champs from 2001 because this was one year that we were able to pull up. Um, top sportsman was Steve Splawn. Top dragster was Ricky Atkins, one of a handful. I think he either, I think it was two or three in a row or maybe three out of four years, something like that. Ricky kind of ran over the top dragster category. That was interesting to note, uh, second place in 2001 in IHRA top dragster was Tim Butler. Butler, one of the, I think, most I don't know if well-known is the right word because I feel like he kind of gets lost in history, but maybe one yeah. of the more unheralded standout sportsman performers of yeah. several decades. I, I know Tim quite a bit because we, we you know, I grew up right. at Bradenton and Sunshine and Tim, when I was a teenager, um, Tim was, he was a freak of nature back then. Those two, it, it was, you know, the, the, the two tracks, they were both owned by Art Malone at the time. Uh, we did a weekly, uh, newsletter and if you uh, if you won two weeks in a row they put a bounty on you and you would be on the cover tim's picture was pretty much on there every other week um if he didn't double you know he had his firebird street car which might well be the winningest bracket car of all time in any class any category uh and then of course he was one of the first guys to really have success in a dragster and uh he was just money you know multiple multiple world champ or uh, track championships uh you know, mid eighties, uh, before delay boxes really became nobody better, uh, bracket racing. And, uh, yeah, he, he sort of, uh, set the pace for, for, uh, a lot of what came afterwards. 
The story comes to mind because I've I've heard Troy Williams Jr. tell it, and I've heard Edmund tell it, but the, I think it's the first time that Edmund went to Florida for the Winter Series. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows him, you know, kid from Texas, and uh, in the final round, I think on the first day, it's it's him and Butler, and Edmund mm-hmm. wins, and he comes up the return road, and the and the girl that, that hands out the time slips is just looking at the time slip in awe, and she's like, "You beat." Butler, you, you beat Butler, you beat Butler. And she's going nuts. And I can just, I can still see, I can hear Edmund telling the story with this look on his face. And he's looking at her like, woman, I, I beat everybody. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but that was so unheard of there, you know, because, because of what Butler was. And, and really, to, to, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, still is. Uh, yeah, and, and, and one of the interesting things, you know, a lot of people forget the first two, three years of, of the Moroso Five Day before it became really, really popular. Um, they had, it was 5,000 to win Super Pro. And then they also had a sportsman eliminator class. And well, Butler dragged his Firebird down there. And I think the first year um, he won two days, was runner up at another, you know, probably did the same thing the following year. And it was Randy Folk of all people that got tired of it and said, enough of this. By year three, he built, Randy had put together like a 68 Camaro uh, you know, back then, of course, it would have been a foot brake car, probably a high 11 second car. And he, in big, huge letters, it was Butler Buster and it had the circle with the slash. And that was a car that he built it in Illinois, dragged it all the way to Florida for no other reason than uh, trying to end Tim Butler's dominance. And um, I don't believe he did. You know, Tim continued to win and, and win often. Um, but yeah, that 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 was sort of the impact that that Tim Butler had. I think everybody who, you know, before the Kenny Underwoods of the world, before I think people in the early eighties, when you went to Florida, you had your sights set on Tim Butler. That yeah. was, that was the gold standard. Um, circling back to, to IHRA from 2001, uh, Michael Lyons was the modified world champion. One of the few years that Anthony Bertozzi didn't win it. And I was really off here. I think Anthony was like fifth or sixth. I don't know what happened there. He did recover to win the super summer off. (laughs) Yeah. He did recover to win the super stock world championship in the same year. So it's not like it was a completely down season Uh, of note modified and super stock. Scotty Stillings, number two in both categories in Mm. 2001 Uh, stock eliminator world champion was Monty Joe Bogan. Mike Fuquay won the quick crowd, which was IHRA's version of the 890 category world championship. And I think if you just look up the, the numbers, you would say 1996. We, we discussed this a little bit on our best sportsman season ever. 96 is the year that really stands out for Fuquay because he was IHRA world champion in both top dragster and quick rod. Uh, he was quick to point to 2001 as what he determined to be his best season ever. Um, that year he was not only the 890 champion in IHRA quick rod, uh, he was also the B&M Series world champion, which I think is essentially the swan song for the B&M Series, but it was a year that it got yeah. split up into four different divisions. And Mike, in addition to winning multiple IHRA national and divisional events, that year seemingly was winning or in $10,000 finals like every other weekend. It sure. was a, a hell of a season. I think the number, he and I were texting about this a few weeks back when we had yeah. this initial conversation. I think he said he won like $125,000 that year. And in 2001, that was an insane amount of. Yeah, uh, when, when you when you right. when when there were very limited amount of 50 granders yes. and, and only one mega money race. Yeah, 
for yeah. sure. No, it's an impressive number today, but back then that was just unheard of. Um, I thought it was interesting to note too, second place in iTrade that season, Evan Richardson, uh, second to, uh, to Fuquay in the quick rod category. 990 was Bernard Weaver. Uh, second place was Damon Dabbs. There's a bit of a, a name from the past. Mm -hmm. um, and another one that I could have included with that list of DFW area Absolutely. racers in that time. Um, and Donald Webb in, uh, in Hot Rod. Uh, Webb still running, still driving the same car, still having success in the 1090 category. Uh, he was uh, that year's world champion. Second place was Steve Corker. Corker would go on to win an IHK championship in top sportsman some 15 plus years later. So some, some big names there. Um, transition into bracket racing, and this won't take long just because as we've discussed in the past, finding record of big dollar <laughs> bracket racing from this far back is, is very hit and miss, very difficult to find. Uh, the one constant was the the World Super Pro Challenge at Michigan. That race has been going on since the mid-90s, hasn't missed a beat, and is actually documented. Um, the B&M series, like I said before, was kind of in its swan song. This is the year that it went nationwide, so to speak, and had four separate divisions with a national championship mm -hmm. runoff. Uh, and it was the last year for over a decade that there were two millions. This was the, the this second and final Millennium Million as well as George Howard's original million, which uh, interesting note here, this is the, the only time that it was contested at Atlanta. Um, so I guess we'll start in Stanton uh, with the World Super Pro Challenge. Mm -hmm. Aaron McCullough was the winner of the 50 that year. Aaron McCullough, no uh, stranger to those of you that have followed big dollar bracket racing, but this was an absolute burst onto the scene at that time outside of Norwalk and his area tracks like Aaron was not a well-known name in 2001 and then obviously was a very well-known name after sure. winning the 50 grander in Stanton amid a lot of controversy because Aaron was if memory serves utilizing a delay box right letting go off the top but mm -hmm. deep staging to do it and was essentially like confusing a lot of competitors you just imagine the, the stage ball goes out as the tree's about to come down. No one really knows if he's going deep or not going deep. Just a lot of confusion. And, and subsequently since is probably the reason that deep staging isn't allowed at the majority of big dollar bracket races and even creates a bit of an issue now with the box, no box stuff. Sure. Um, but you, you can thank Aaron for that. I, I don't really <laughs> even completely understand the reasoning behind going deep with the delay box, but he was and it worked. So there you go. Yeah. And, and, you know, to, to elaborate on, on your, your point a little earlier on uh, the mid-Michigan, the, the Stanton event, you know, since the 1990s, actually, that event has been going on since the early 80s. It was a 20 grander, you know, which at the time was huge money up until, I don't know, maybe 93, 94, and then they decided to up it. But, you know, that is now an event that 40 years, it, you know, it, I, I suppose you could argue that it is the longest running continuous big money bracket event uh, out there now it it you know it was pretty much uh i know when i was you know younger t teenager it was pretty much a must attend event still is uh you know very much on every almost everybody's calendar still does very well and it's you know it's it's nice to see that sort of uh history because uh, you know i know to a lot of racers 50 grand is 50 grand i don't really think it matters where you win it but when you have an event that has a little bit of history so and tradition uh, especially they do a good job. The Ledford family does a great job up there of maintaining that history. Yes. Um, probably a little more special to, to cash that check than maybe some others. Trivia time for you, Kevin. Hmm? There's been one time in the history of the World Super Pro Challenge the winner's purse exceeded 
fifty grand. They bumped it up to one hundred once. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Who wanted? And you? Uh, okay, I could do one of two things. I could take a shot in the dark, mm-hmm. or I could reach over here and grab <laughs> this. Um, it's a household name, but it is it, not one that it, you would normally associate is, with knocking all right, on McDonald's. Uh, in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I probably would have not gotten this, or it might have taken me far longer than we have time for. Um, but due to my dubious record keeping, I can tell you that it was Mr. Matt Driscoll, Super Comp World Champion, won $100,000, and he did so in 1998. I thought it was in the late nineties. Yeah. So, and Matt dominated the the weekend. I think he lost one round somewhere along the way, but I want to mm-hmm. say he won like the first five grander was in the semis of the 10, won the, mm-hmm. won the hundred grander and then didn't even stick around for Sunday. And I don't believe has ever been back to that event since I asked him about it. It's probably been 10 years ago. I asked him about it and he's like, no man, why would I ever go back? Where most of us would be like, yeah, I'm going to, capitalize on that momentum like i'm gonna go back there and relive it he's like no man it's never gonna get better than that i'm never yeah. going back there <laughs> I can tell you, if, I, if i ever win a hundred thousand dollars whether it's on a drag strip or a casino you're probably not gonna see me on sunday either <laughs> <laughs> good point good point um okay so we'll go again in, in chronological order of the, of the two millions the money a million i believe was always memorial day weekend right around that time of year this was the second um we talked about the first a couple of weeks ago um, second millennium million at Rockingham. This was also, also the last. And I, I actually stumbled into a, a, a write-up, a post-race report on Drag Race Central this morning, looking over this. I remembered Ricky Jones winning. Um, I didn't really remember that it, or why it was the last. I guess this was, there may have been more to this, but this particular event was very much rain plague. The forecast was awful. Um, there was like a hundred cars entered. So it paid the minimum, which was a hundred thousand dollars to win. Uh, Ricky Jones knocked that down. And obviously this was the last one. So I'd assume that Earwood took a bath on it and that was the end of the, the millennium million. And like I said, there may have been more went into that, but uh, Ricky Jones with the win over Joe Nelson, um, Ricky Jones with uh a really impressive weekend in addition to winning the hundred grader he was a uh, runner-up the day prior in the twenty thousand dollar to win uh warm-up race to the aforementioned melinda bertozzi so melinda with a big season uh, back in 2001 i thought it was really interesting to note too especially for those of you that uh, were watching the live feed of spring fling galat last night and just admiring the show that tommy cable was putting on <laughs> doing very tommy cable things just like laying down st- ridiculous run after ridiculous run after ridiculous run before uh, eventually losing in the final round to, to Jamie Holston. Cable was a semi-finalist. Actually, it was in the write-up that I was reading this morning. Cable was a semi-finalist at the Millennium Million in 2001. Um, before losing, he turned it red to Ricky Jones in the semis. That was eighth round. In the seven rounds prior, Tommy Cable won three best package of the round. Like I, I got it, I got it right here in front of me. So he was like third round, five thou package, uh, sixth round, three thou package, seventh round, ten thou package, and then following reaction times of consecutive reaction times of perfect seven, one, and three, cable turned it red in the semis with an eight thousandth red. But I feel like I don't know Tommy that well. Like he's he's one. Of, he seems like one of the nicest guys at the racetrack. I feel like that epitomizes his whole outlook is like 
just completely throw caution to the wind, super aggressive. I think it's why he and Anthony get along so well because right, it's right. similar, right? Yeah. Uh, it would be interesting to know if you had a chance to talk to him, if he remembers what adjustments he made, right? When you go triple O, uh, you put in, you know, he was 7,000 X round. Did he put in seven? Did he put in five? Did he leave it alone and say, oh, I'm just not going to hit it that hard twice? <laughs> no. And that, it, like I say, the, the three best packages out of seven rounds, just incredible. And I think it's cool to look back at the time too, because he was like 518 that on, which is yeah. nowadays is such a slow dragster and was so <laughs> common, you know I mean? Probably mid rate, mid, mid, mid pack at that time. Um, Okay, so I went through that. Again, B&M Series 2001, um, this was the, a bit of a swan song. George Howard was not – oh, no. George was still running this. Yeah. George had, had separated this. I guess it went on for a couple more years because eventually it sold to John Spar, AJ Ash, Tommy Castaneda got involved. I think this was George's last year. Um, separated it into four divisions had division champions and then the four division champions ran off at Atlanta at the million for the B&M national championship. It was a big deal. It was prestigious. And it was a, is a huge prize. It was a turnkey, I believe it was turnkey, uh, race tech dragster to the overall champion, the winner of that four car runoff, which as we mentioned earlier was Mike Fuqua. And I was trying to remember because I was part of the four car runoff. I would won the, the division four, I guess it was the, you know, the Texas area, um, division. It was me. It was Mike. It was Dan Phelps. And I can't remember the fourth. It was a, it was like a Carolina based. It was that region, but I, I cannot remember who the fourth was. So my apologies, somebody, uh, if you can remember that can bring it up because that was a pretty neat deal. And, and it was fitting that Mike won it because he was so dominant throughout that season. Um, and then as the million proceeded that again, that was the year that the million was Atlanta. Uh, the only year that it's been at Atlanta, uh, Big Ed Richardson, not Edmund, Big Ed, uh, was your million-dollar race winner that year. He's also a two-time NHRA Super Comp World Champion. Uh, he was uh, His win at the million that year was over Jeff O'Neill. It's another name from the past. O'Neill was a, a dominant force himself in big-dollar bracket racing at that time. Um, and that was – that event, like, I, like I'm bringing it back to, to my own personal history – so that's in October. That's like two months removed from my father's passing. That's a month removed from 9-11. On the day prior to the million, I won the, the $20,000 main event. And then they also used to do a, I think it was called the Mullis All-Star Shootout. It was everybody that had won a B&M race that mm -hmm. season was entered in a race for a chassis. And I won that on the same night. So it was like a double up at the million. I was spent. I had nothing left at the million. But uh, I, I think I ran Ed Curtis in the final of the, uh, the dragster race and I ran Dan Northrup in the final of the 20, first time I met Danny. And uh, so that was, that's a memory that... Uh, that uh, was, unforgettable experience. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, don't, you never forget me and Danny, right? So, yeah, that was good times. I don't, I, I'm leaving out probably a winner the day prior and the, and the last day of the million. I just don't remember and couldn't find the, the details on it. But I do know that Ed won the big show. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other real thing that, on the calendar that we can find proof of was the Moroso five day. And this is more your baby. So you take over from Moroso. Uh, Moroso, it was, you know, again, in, in the prime of that event. And, uh, I, I believe this was his first win after, you know, perfect attendance being there, but Randy folk comes out and wins day one. Uh, the aforementioned Jeff O'Neill, you know, much like Mike Fuquay monster season that year. Comes off his runner-up at the million, wins day two. Uh, 
the late great Scott Winnie, you know, a guy you think of as being a chassis builder and an alcohol funny car racer, uh, showed how versatile he was. He was goes always down, successful down there, it seemed like. Yeah, goes down there, picks off a day. Nick Folk, uh, there was, the party is probably still going on uh, anytime Nick wins a, a big event like that. Um, Larry Erickson, uh, a, a Florida, well, at the time he was a Florida guy, uh, wins day five. This should be uh, no surprise to anyone, your overall champion that year, Peter Biondo. He, uh, he was a runner-up to O'Neill on day two and uh, managed to come through and score enough points to uh, to win the overall, which is for pretty much anyone, that's a perfect way to cap off your season. All right, so that's a look back on 2001 from soup to nuts, from uh, world events to the NHRA professional scene, the Lucas Oil Series, the IHRA, the big dollar bracket scene. Um, that was a lot. Anything it was a lot outside of the obvious 9-11, anything that really jumps out to you when you say even, okay, 2001, like what was in your mind with the standout story? It, it, it is hard to go beyond, you know, what, what happened uh, on 2011. A lot of times you don't even remember what happened before that. You know, it, it sort of clouds your memory of the things that happened in, in the first eight months of that year. Um, but, but again, you know, that was, uh, you know, being an NHRA employee, uh, the historical thing of celebrating the 50th anniversary, the summer race in Pomona, putting together the 50th list. Uh, th things like that were, were kind of what consumed it where, you know, we spent a lot of that year immersed in the history of the sport, honoring the pioneers. Um, that part I remember is, is being really fun. Um, and, uh, and I also do remember, you know, I don't get to the million every year, but I do remember going to Atlanta that year. Uh, I remember Ed, Ed Richardson's win, um, you know, being, you know, just kind of an interesting, you know, again, being a Florida guy who I sort of grew up with. Um, yeah, th th those were uh, interesting times. And uh, I think, you know, all things considered, uh, the sport came through that year in, in, in fairly good shape, despite of uh, all the turmoil in the world. So um, it gives you a little hope for where we're at now, I suppose. Yeah, no, and I think in terms of what the sport has to offer, there's a correlation to draw there, because I think it did provide a sense of um, peace, diversion, whatever you want to call it, from that current reality. Like there was as much uncertainty as there was when we got back into our own, you know, our natural surroundings, so to speak, with our, with our friends and, and, and at the racetrack, like things seemed to resume some sense of normalcy, even if it was only for 12 hours, or, you know, at, at the time. And, and I think that we're seeing uh, similar um, or we're feeling similar things as we get back to the track. Yeah, and, and I do actually, it does make me think of one other thing. Uh, the, the, the fall Chicago event, which I think would have been held late September of, of that year, uh, flew in, me being an enormous Cubs fan, we had tickets to Wrigley Field. That was the first of ball game back after 9-11. And, and if people, if you're a Cub fan, or even if you're just a baseball fan, you probably remember that was, you know, we were sitting in the outfield bleachers, that was the game where Sammy Sosa ran out with a huge American flag, you know, pregame. It, it, it was a huge moment. You know, the Yankees had their amazing moment where, you know, President Bush threw the per perfect strike to get, you know, that, but this was Wrigley Field's, uh, you know, own, own tribute post 9-11. And uh, that, that's something I will always take from, from, from that year. So sort of, 
you know, you, you let the healing begin and sort of resume a sense of normalcy. Good stuff. Kevin, thank you again for, uh, for your insight and, uh, and, and the fun stories back and forth. Always appreciated. Thank mm -hmm. you, uh, whether you are uh, listening on the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast feed, watching on mm -hmm. uh, the This Is Bracket Racing Facebook page. We appreciate your time and attention. Hope that you've enjoyed this and mm -hmm. uh, we'll be back with, uh, yeah. I, I think we'll go back to Wayback Wednesday. Maybe it's Throwback Thursday uh, coming up in coming weeks. Yeah, and stick around for a quick second after you uh, log off. So. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. You guys have a great day. And uh, we'll see, see you next, next week. week. Just, just curious, are, are, you, um, are you going to uh, Mark? Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer, led by knowledgeable professionals. Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors, and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.